All right. Good morning, familia. Um, man, I'm impressed that you guys made it to church. Uh, I, I thought that we were going to have more room for social distance, uh, but I guess I was wrong. So thanks for coming. Uh, we're so grateful that you are here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of the pastors here at church. And I want to welcome you all again, whether you are in person, worshiping with us online, or if you're visiting for the first time. As always, I want to remind the church that we are here to love you, serve you in any way we can. And I think that this is a great season for the church, not only because of what the Lord uh, is clearly doing in our midst and how the Lord continues to move, but I think that this is a greater, a great season for the church because we are going through this uh, series that we have called Gospel Culture, in which we are looking um, into 12 different biblical traits or 12 different uh, beliefs and practices that will help us explain and define who we are as a church and who we want to be as a church. So uh, there are three main reasons why I think that this series is important. Number one, it actually is going to show us what a church ought to be. So these 12 biblical traits explain what the church ought to be. It defines what the church ought to be. And it tells you that the church is much more than a gathering of people, people that have fun together and sing together and whatever it is, that the church has these 12 different um, traits, biblical traits that explain why is it that we exist. Number two, this series is important because it gives us a blueprint of, of how we can experience a spiritual renewal or continue to experience spiritual renewal. And number three, this series is important because it gives you the tools necessary for, for you to remain faithful and fruitful in the midst of an increasing secular society. It gives us a definition of what the church ought to be. It gives us a blueprint of how we experience a spiritual renewal. And number three, it gives you the tools necessary to remain faithful and fruitful in the midst of this crazy changing world. Um, so I need you to do me a favor. Uh, I need you to look at the person next to you and say, are you ready for the second trade? Go ahead. Okay, and you, 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 you could say, answer however you want to answer. You don't even know what to say. That's weird, right? That's okay. Uh, last week, we started talking about the first trait, and we say, for me, it's the most foundational of all, which is the supremacy of the Scripture. And one of the things, to make the argument super quick, um, why I make that the trait number one is because any church that doesn't have the Bible as the center of everything is not a church. It might be a club. It might be a nice gathering. It might be a group of people that look good and smell good. But that's not a church. A church has the Scripture at the center of everything. That's what we preach. That's what we teach. We let the Bible inform and guide everything we do as a church. So I hope that's clear. If you didn't listen to that sermon, you could go ahead and uh, watch it online. Um, I think that it was okay, right? Now, as I think of that, though... Um, the more I realize, and this is kind of my, my own personal journey with the Lord, is that the more I make the Bible the center of my life, and the more the church makes the Bible the center of its life, it's just a matter of time in which something else is also the center of everything, and is the gospel. That when we make the Bible the supremacy in the, in the church, it's just a matter of time in which you get to see in the Bible 
that the gospel is also at the center of everything because it is also at the center of Scripture. So what I'm going to try to do today with the time I have is to answer three questions. We're going to try to answer why is it that the gospel is central, why do we need it, and how do we make it personal? Why is the gospel central, why do we need it, and how do we make it personal? Now, I have a ton of information today, so I'm going to try to honor my time, um, but it's a lot, so I need you to get ready. Is that okay? Now, do not, get, do not disconnect, because I will raise my voice to get your attention. I'm going to raise it regardless, but just a warning, okay? Point number one, why is the gospel central? Now, if you have been part of the church for a while, you know that this is one of our values. This is something that we have believed and preached, talked about for at least the last, uh, I don't know, 10, 12 years. This is one of the reasons why a few years ago, we wrote this as one of our values. We said, that the gospel isn't just the starting line, it is the whole race. You heard this many times before. The gospel changes everything. Our heart motivations, relationships, work, the fruit of our service in the world. The gospel is the good news that God is making everything wrong in us and in the world right through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, my intention today is to convince you, as much as I can, by the power of the Spirit, hopefully, that that is true. That that's not just something that we say, but that's something that we truly believe, and I want to invite you to believe it just as much. So if you are part of the church and you already heard this, I want to invite you to not assume that you already got this, because that's how you make mistakes. I want you to have an open mind as much as pretend like if you never heard this, because that will be the only way the gospel affects you Again, don't check out. Number two, if you are joining our church, at least in the last few months, I want to invite you to see why is it that as a church we, call our, we called ourselves a gospel-centered church. And if you are exploring Christianity, number three, I want to explain to you why is it that for Christians, the gospel is not an option. And why we talk so much about this. And this is the reason why we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. So the question is this. Why is the gospel central? All right, I have to give you a little bit of context here. So if you're not familiar with uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, this book, these two letters were written by Paul, one of the apostles. Um, and it's interesting, what is interesting about this church, though, is that it's, ama- it's an amazing church. Uh, It's a church that has all kinds of beautiful and amazing things. It's a church that uh, is is full of super talented people, gifted people, influential people, a ton of professionals, all kinds of social classes, a very, very uh, impressive church. But at the same time, it's a church that is super complicated. It's a church that has all kinds of issues. These people argue about everything. There's divisions in the church. There's issues about leadership. There's sexual, sexual immorality going on in the church. They're suing one another. They have problems with idolatry. They have issues with marriage. They struggle and fight about communion, for goodness sake. They struggle with the spiritual gifts, and they have a hard time loving one another. Everything that I just mentioned about that church shows up only in the first letter. In the first 14 chapters. 
Now, if you have complaints about this church, if you struggle with our church, my recommendation is super simple. Read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and I guarantee you that by the time you finish reading those two letters, you will feel so good about this church. <laughs> Isn't that what we do when we struggle? We just find somebody else that is worse than us, and we feel so good about ourselves. Well, what is interesting about this letter, though, is that Paul is dealing with all this kind of stuff for 14 chapters. He's addressing every single one of those things for 14 chapters. And he does something weird, for the lack of a better word, in chapter 15. So he's addressing all these things, and you get to chapter 15, and it seems like if he's changing the topic, he starts talking about the gospel. And you're like, why would Paul change the topic? I want to argue that he didn't change the topic. Look at what he says in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, pay attention that Paul is talking to the church. He's not talking to uh, unconverted people. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's not talking to people of different religions. He's talking to Christians. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and which you have taken your stand. And that's an interesting comment. Because he's reminding Christians of what they already heard, received, and stand on. He's telling Christians to re-believe what they already believe. And you're like, What? Why would Paul do this? And this is the argument. Paul is about to convince them that the reason why they have been struggling with all those other things is because they left the gospel behind. The reason why there's division, the reason why there's problems with leadership, the reason why they have problems in marriage, the reason why they, there's division with communion, the reason why they're not using their spiritual gifts well, the reason why they're struggling with everything in life is because they have left the gospel behind. They stopped having the gospel as the center of their lives. I actually think that that's a struggle with Christians today, you know? Actually, I want to invite you to see that whenever you struggle, it's because you did the same thing. Whenever I struggle, it's because I've done the same thing. See, for many of us, the gospel is this thing that you receive at the beginning. You hurt and you believe. You hurt, you believe, and you repent. And everyone at the beginning, when you hear this for the first time and the Spirit is doing His work in our hearts, everyone is full of joy and passion and all these things. And we want to share it with everybody like every time we find something beautiful. But as time goes by and you start to hear other voices, you walk from truly, truly believing the gospel to assuming the gospel, knowing, thinking that you already have enough information, that you know that what Jesus already did for you was enough, all these things, and then you start to look for something or for some things that are, quote-unquote, more important. Now I need to read the Bible more. Nothing wrong with that. We just preached about that. 
We now I need to die to my sin more. Nothing wrong with any of that. Now I need to memorize the Bible. Now I need to give and serve and all these things. And please do all of that. But none of those things can ever replace the gospel. Those things are not the gospel. So you start from believing and you move into assuming and eventually you forget it. And Christianity is about everything except the gospel. That's what Paul is arguing here. And that's why in verse 2 he says, by this gospel you are saved. Notice that he doesn't say you were saved. By the gospel today you are saved. And he's talking to Christians. He says, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And this is Paul's way of saying, listen, it is not the gospel plus something else. It is not the gospel plus memorizing the Bible. It is not the gospel plus serving. It is not the gospel plus being a good person. It is not the gospel plus being a good parent. It is not the gospel plus being a good spouse and a good friend. It is not the gospel plus doing anything religious. It's the gospel, period. And if you add something to the gospel or you subtract from the gospel, you have believed in vain. That's a crazy statement. Because to non-Christians, Paul says, that's what you must believe. And guess what he says to Christians? That's what you must believe. The gospel is for the non-Christian and for the Christian. The gospel is what is necessary for someone to become a Christian, and the gospel is what is necessary for a Christian to grow in their Christianity. This is the reason why this church was struggling with all of those things. They left the gospel behind. And if you don't think that that's what Paul is saying, read what he says at the beginning of verse 3. For what I received, I passed unto you as of First importance. Can you say first importance? No, like give you a minute. You know what that means? That there's nothing more important than that. That it's a foundational belief. That the most important thing is that you never walk away from the gospel. That is the most basic belief you must have. And that everything else is built upon that. You know what our problem is? We forgot or we forget what the basics are. All right. How many of you guys like sports? How many of you guys hate sports? Well, so I, this is just going to apply to the first group. So just close your eyes <laughs> or your ears. Um, so I played soccer my entire life. Uh, I've said that before. And I got to play college just a couple of, couple of years, right? But that didn't go well. So nothing to brag about there. Uh, but, but there's a difference in the way, for example, Latin Americans play soccer and, let's say, Europeans play soccer. I'm not even going to use the United States because we're just learning how to play soccer. <laughs> I, I don't mean to offend anybody, but everybody knows that that is true, all right? So the difference between Latin Americans and, and Europeans is that Europeans, they, their game is like three passes and a goal. Boom, 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 boom. That's it. All games are like that, so everyone's super fast, super skillful. They just move fast, and that's it. The problem for Latin Americans is that that is boring. There's no flavor in the game, you know? 
So my first year that I was playing college, I bring my Latin flavor into the field. And I am playing to, to win the game, but I'm also playing to make people happy. <laughs> and I'm playing because I like to play the game, but I like to play in a way that I bring flavor to the game. So I would touch the ball and do little things over here and stuff. And the coach would get so upset all the time, and I could just hear him from outside, Hannibal, stop! Just play the game. And that's why he quit. <laughs> but he was right. Because if you know anything about sports, the best teams are not the ones that do fancy stuff. The best teams are the ones that are experts on the basics. Right? The call of the Christian is to be an expert in the gospel. Don't adorn the gospel. Don't bring anything extra to it. Don't subtract from it. Embrace the gospel as it is. Because it's not just the thing that you need at the beginning of your spiritual journey. It will be the one thing that you need today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, until the Lord takes you with him. The moment you walk away from the gospel, the moment you stop growing, and the moment you start putting other things as more important than the gospel. Now, Paul is writing and saying all of this, and he knows that these people have struggled so much that there's a possibility that not only they have assumed the gospel, that most likely they don't even remember what the gospel is. Oh, it was something about Jesus. Yeah, something about a guy that went to the cross. And because of that, Paul gives us in three verses the summary of, summary of the gospel. He says this, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas. And then he mentions another 500 people and all the people there. And he uses four words, four expressions. Jesus died, buried, raised, and, and appeared. The first and the third word goes together, and the second and the fourth word goes together. It says that Jesus died and also was raised, and that Jesus was buried and also appeared to other people. This is the shortest definition in the Bible of what the gospel is. And this is what non-Christians ought to believe, and this is what Christians must continue to believe. Because the gospel changes everything. Now, what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is I'm going to read to you, read it literally, but read to you what I understand Paul says or is explaining here with these four words. And I want to read it because I don't want to miss anything of what you need to hear today. This is what Paul says. I'm expanding it in four words. Listen up, church. What Paul is saying with these four words is that we were so sinful, so broken, so needed that, needed that Jesus had to die for us. Jesus had to die in our place because we, there, we, there, there was a need of a substitution. He had to take upon himself the consequences of our sin. That it was going to be either him or us because no one could take the place of anybody else because everyone is sinful. The gospel is about the sinless, a sinless being taking the place of a sinful person. 
And Jesus had to die for us because every sin we had committed in thought, motivation, word, or action was against a holy, good, and perfect God. And that because God is holy God, he couldn't just look away, he couldn't just forgive our sins, because if he would do that, he would be breaking his own moral law. He had already said that whoever commits a sin must die. So what does God do in Jesus Christ? He takes upon himself the consequences of our sin. God himself taking upon himself the consequence of your sin. Because he wanted, because we wanted to put ourselves in his place, like if we were God, God put himself in our place. This is called the great exchange. And since Jesus takes our place in the cross, if we believe and we repent, we are forgiven. And all your, past, your sins from the past, your sins from the present, and your sins from the future are forgiven. We are no longer defined by what we have done or what we do or what we could do in the future. The forgiveness of Jesus applies to our present Past and future. And not only he died, Paul says, but he also resurrected. And in his resurrection is and the resurrection is the guarantee that everything that Jesus says about himself had to be true. Why? Because he said that he would die and resurrect. And he did. Therefore, there is no reason why we should ever doubt not only that Jesus was God, but that when he says that our sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. Nothing to add to the gospel, nothing to subtract from the gospel, because everything was accomplished in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection also guarantees that in Jesus we have been justified, declared righteous before the Father. Meaning that in Jesus we are given a new identity, a new record. And that when God sees us, he sees us in Jesus, and he loves us as much as he loves his son, because we are in Jesus. That is called union with Christ. In Jesus, we are, have been forgiven, accepted, redeemed, rescued, adopted, loved, and eternally secure. This is the reason why we must believe the gospel. This is the reason why we must continue to believe the gospel. This is the reason why we should never walk away from the gospel, never leave it behind, never forget it, and always keep it in front of us. The reason we can never afford to do that is because no other religion in the world offers that. All religions in the world teach you something for you to do to earn your salvation. All religions in the world tell you that you must do something, but only Christianity offers you a God that already did something in his son. Christianity is the only system of beliefs in which our God not only desires salvation for his people, but accomplishes salvation for his people. This is why the gospel is not good advice. This is why the gospel is good news. It is a declaration of victory. Ha uh, sin has been defeated. Death has been destroyed. Condemnation has been eradicated. And it is because we have been accepted in Jesus Christ that now we have been accepted by the Father and we have a place in his house. Died, buried, raised, and appeared. That's why you need the gospel. Four words. In four words, he explains all of that. You won't make it without the gospel. You won't survive without the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it is the power of God for transformation. And you would think that that's enough. But Paul not only wants to make the argument that you need the gospel your entire life, and that's why it should be central. But Paul makes the argument that the reason why we also got to put cent uh, as the center of our lives is because he was the center of his scriptures. So he's not making this up. 
He's getting all of this from the Old Testament writings. And he says this in verse 3 again, in verse 4. He says, for what I received, I passed down to you. I received it. That Christ died according to, our, according to the scriptures. And then when he talks about the resurrection, he repeats the same phrase. According to the scriptures. You know why that's so important, church? Because it shapes the way you read the Bible. And it shapes the way you understand the Bible. It tells you that the Bible at its core is not about you. And that the Bible at its core is not about me. And it tells you that the Bible at its core is not about moral rules to be followed. This is not your guide to life like people say it. The scripture is about Jesus and what he came to accomplish at the cross. The Bible is all about this redemption story. And if you don't read it that way, two things could happen. Either you condemn yourself or you become an arrogant person. Let me make my case. Let's take the Ten Commandments. Let's say that you truly read the Ten Commandments and you understand about the applications and implications of the Ten Commandments. Man, if you read the Bible and the Ten Commandments as something that you must do, I guarantee you that you will condemn yourself. Why? Because no one has lived the Ten Commandments. No one can live the Ten Commandments. You might be good at one or two or three, but not all. And let's say that that's not your case. Let's say that you're the opposite. Let's say that you're the person that thinks that you can leave the Ten Commandments, which I don't know anybody that can leave the Ten Commandments that way. And let's say that you convince yourself that you live in it, and what happens in your heart? You start to see other people as morally inferior because you already got it down. Isn't that what we do with any other sin? We just pay attention to the ones that we don't have a struggle with. And we elevate the ones that other people have. So reading the Bible as a guide to morality either condemns you or gives you a a heart of pride. Therefore, the solution is to learn to read the Bible as the redemption story. And I guarantee you that when you learn to read the Bible as the redemption story, you will want to believe and obey the Bible. We are not changed by behavior modification, people. You are not changed by pretending that you got it down. We are changed when our heart is changed, and the only way our heart is changed is when the gospel, Jesus Christ, and his atoning work is at the center of your heart. Now, let me read. This is the day of reading. Let me read a long section of a modified version of something that J.D. Greer, Pastor J.D. Greer, wrote a few years ago. I want to invite you to see the Bible like that. He says this, in Genesis, Jesus is the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, I'm only going to do some, by the way. In Exodus, he was the Passover lamb. 
In Leviticus, he was the temple and the holy place. In Numbers, he was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he was the prophet coming who is greater than Moses. In Joshua, he was the conquering warrior leading into the promised land. In Judges, he was the broken savior raising up to rescue his people. In Ruth, he was the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he was the pure-hearted shepherd king who faced giants alone. In First and Second Kings, he is the righteous ruler. In First and Second Chronicles, Chronicles, he is the restorer, restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder, uh, the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he is the advocate, risking his life to, to restore his people. In Job, he is the living redeemer. In the book of Psalms, he is the one who hears your cries. In Proverbs, he is the wisdom personified. In, Eccles in Ecclesiastes, he is the meaning. Uh, he is the meaning that helps you escape madness. In the songs of songs, he is your lover and your bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the wounded for your transgressions and, and bruised for your iniquities. In Jeremiah, he is the spirit that writes God's laws in your heart. In Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the river of life bringing healing to the nations. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, in Hosea he is the ever faithful husband pursuing an unfaithful wife. In Joel, he is the restorer. Let me skip to the New Testament. In Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the son of God. In Luke, he's the savior born to us, to us in the son of David. In John, he's the word becoming flesh dwelling among us. In Acts, he's the Christ, the risen Lord, proclaiming salvation to the nations. In Romans, he is the justifier. In First and Second Corinthians, he's the spirit at work in the churches. In Galatians, he's the righteousness imputed to us by faith. In Ephesians, he's the righteous armor. In Philippians, the God who meets us, who meets our every need. In Colossians, he's the firstborn of all creation. In First and second Thessalonians, he is descending from heaven to meet us um, together in the clouds. In first and second Timothy, he is the one mediator between God and man. In Titus, he is the faithful pastor. In Philemon, he is the redeemer, restoring to our service. In Hebrews, he is the great high priest. Let me skip to Revelations. And in Revelations, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the land slain before the foundation of the world, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The entire Bible. It's about him. And the more you see him, the more you want to live for him. Can you see why the gospel must be central to you as individual and to us as a church? The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Can you say that? The gospel changes everything? Say to the person next to you, the gospel changes everything. Now, just in case there's someone here doubting that this is true, I want to do some practical applications. And this is going to go fast. All right? So this is the second question. Why do we need it? Now, I'm going to use verses 3 to 5, or 3, three and 4, just to prove my point. And to give you two, three, if I can, uh, practical applications. I want you to focus in these phrases alone. That Christ died for our sins and that he was raised on the third day. And what that means. Let's just start with the word for. I told you that the word for there talks about substitution. That Jesus took our place because we wanted to take his place. 
And when he says for, that means that in him we have been forgiven. I already explained that, right? Let's do an application out of that. Because if that is true, and it is, that changes the way you deal with your sin. You know why I say that? Let's say that you commit whatever sin you could think of. And there's something inside of you that tells you that you got to make that right with God. And the tendency of the human heart is to try to fix it or balance it out. And if I do these things and I behave and somehow my good works are going to overpower my bad works. You know what the problem is with that? That it doesn't matter how much you try, it's never enough. You always have this sense of inadequacy. You always have this sense that it's not enough. You know why? Because every sin we have committed is against this holy God. Therefore, every sin we have committed is a cosmic sin. How are you going to make that up? Unless you preach to yourself the gospel. And you remember that what Jesus already did is like a receipt that says paid in full. And I guarantee you that you will be quicker to repent. You know why? Because you're not trying to earn something from God. You're doing it because you already have God. Let me do another application. Think about the second phrase right there, our sins. Did you notice that Paul didn't say that Jesus died for your sins? He said, our sins. You know why that's so important? Because we are all in the same boat. We are all struggling people. No one here was forgiven because of what we did. There's no one in Christianity that should feel that my sins are less than your sins. You know what, what happens when you start feeling that you're superior to somebody? You preach the gospel to yourself and you remember that Jesus died for our sins. Pay attention to the word raised. I already explained that when Jesus resurrected, means that Jesus justified us, that he declared us righteous before the Father, that he gave us a new identity and a new record. That's what it means to be imputed righteousness in theology. Now, if that is true, and it is because of the gospel, that changes the way you deal with your sin. Why? Listen up. When I struggle, I try to do things that will help me. But the thing that is going to change my heart more than anything is what Augustine used to say when he was tempted to sin. That's not me anymore. You know that story? Augustine was a man that struggled with sexual immorality. He was leaping around with girls all the time. And the gospel comes to him, and one day, one of the ladies that he was fooling around with says, Hey, Augustine, it is I! And Augustine looks at her from the distance and says, Yeah, but that's not me anymore. Boom! Walked away. That's exactly how we, live, we deal with our sin. This is not me anymore. I have a new identity in Jesus Christ. And not only he helps me how I deal with my sin, but he helps me with this unceasing, uh, tiring, exhausting desire I always have inside to try to justify myself. 
That's what we all try to do, to prove something to anybody. And when I struggle with that, I have to preach the gospel to myself again and says, I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to earn. I have nothing to lose because I'm already accepted in Jesus Christ. You know what happens when you forget that? The fear of men controls you. And number three for that one is that it gives me freedom. Listen, I get to be who I am because my worth and value is not based on what you think of me, but what God thinks of me in Jesus. You know why that's so important? Because I get to be 100% me. All my Latinness come in. My accent comes in. My temperament comes in. Everything that I am. And I got the freedom to do what I do with the reality that I have been already approved. You like it or not, that's your problem. I get to be me. You get to be you. You know, when we talk about this racial stuff, I really believe that the solution for racism is the gospel. I get to see and embrace who I am, the way the Lord made me to be, and I get to see how beautiful you are, even if you're different to me. The gospel changes everything. The gospel gives you freedom. Some people might say, well, Hannibal, you know, you can talk about the gospel. That worries me because that means, like, if you're giving permission for people to sin, I'm glad you think that way because Paul is about to correct your thinking. <laughs> you know, this is the reason why he says, so Paul, a religious person that struggles so much, this is what he says in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But his grace to me was not without effect. No, I work harder than, any, than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He calls the gospel the gospel of grace, and this is what he says. Look at how amazing this man lives. He is fully confident and at the same completely humble. You know, he says, I work harder than all the disciples together. Like, who says that? Like, you say that, and people, oh, yeah, well, that's, the, that's pride. Not Paul. Because he immediately says, yeah, but that was not me. It was the gospel of grace inside of me. See how the gospel changes everything. See how even the gospel leads you to good works. Because the gospel is not only the power of God for salvation, but it's the power of God for sanctification and transformation. The gospel must be central because it is salvation, but it's also motivation and it's also empowerment. So listen, if you want to be a better husband and a better wife, a better son and a better daughter, a better friend, a better co-worker, a better leader, a better, uh, to become more generous, more faithful, to glorify God more, to die to yourself more, to grow, to grow in what the Lord is calling you to be more, try different things, Don't do different things, but never walk away from the thing that is of first importance, the gospel. That's why as a church, we're not only gospel-centered, but we want you to be gospel-centered. How do you personalize it? Super simple. Listen up, church. And with this, I finish. The next 20 minutes. 
Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself in the morning. Preach the gospel to yourself at noon. Preach the gospel to yourself in the evening. And preach yourself the gospel before you go to sleep. You know why? Because you are always fighting with this necessity of having to prove something. Martin Lloyd-Jones, amazing British pastor, writer, and did crazy things. Uh, at the end of his life, he got super sick and he couldn't preach anymore, pastor the church, or write anymore. He was, I'm assuming that he was kind of 80 almost. And um, so in the last, I don't know how many years of his life, he just spent it at home and he couldn't do much. And a reporter goes looking for him and says, hey, Martin, how do you feel that now you have been put in a shelf? And he said, what do you mean how I feel? I'm perfectly fine. My name is written in heaven. That should be enough. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful, as always, because the gospel is not just good advice, but it's good news. It's the declaration of victory of something that you have already done. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you allow us and help us believe that more. That we allow the Spirit to glorify Jesus in our minds and hearts. I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, not only He helps us see the gospel and Jesus Christ in every page of the Scripture, but He helps us believe it. That we may repeat it, rehearse it, and remember it until we believe it with all of our hearts. Lord, I know that this is going to be a long journey for us. I know that it's much easier to say that we have to believe the gospel than to believe it. Therefore, Lord, we pray for your assistance. Help us believe and become what we already are. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and the church says.